Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sandy Manava, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Rochester. We will discuss Dr. Manava's paper titled, Clinically Depressed Patients Having ACL Reconstruction Show Improved but Inferior Rate of Achieving MCID for Promise Compared with Situationally Depressed or Non-Depressed Patients, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, this is going to be great. It's certainly an important study, which I think we don't get enough uh, discussion about and consideration in our field. You know, we get so busy, but this plays such a big role in our patients' recovery, just like with therapy and everything uh, that goes along with that. So first of all, give us a summary of your study and how did you become interested in this important topic? Well, I think a lot of my bias actually comes from practicing medicine at the University of Rochester. A lot of people don't know this, but the biopsychosocial model of medicine actually originated at the University of Rochester. And really kind of the underpinning of that way to practice medicine is that there aren't just technical determinants of how patients do after uh, a physician is able to intervene or, or help treat them, but there are psychological determinants of health and there are also socioeconomic issues that factor into how patients do. And so I think kind of being in this environment, um, really the birthplace of the biopsychosocial model certainly helped me in coming up with this concept. Now, I have to give a lot of credit to some of my senior partners, Dr. Mike Maloney, Dr. Ilya Voloshin, and Dr. Judy Baumhauer have really pushed uh, the promise questionnaires upon a lot of our patients over the last five years plus. And we have this amazing repository of data and information about our patient population. And since we're at Rochester, we typically look at physical function, pain interference, and I have to give Dr. Baumhauer a lot of credit because she also valued the depression score quite a bit. And we all kind of have the sense that if you are dealing with a patient that's not as maybe psychologically invested in their recovery, or they're going through quite a bit of stuff, maybe they're not going to do as well. And I think this study certainly shows that uh, there are psychological factors that play into how well patients do. Yeah, for sure. Great summary. And, and you're right. All these aspects of social uh, social situations so important. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I didn't realize the promise. There's a, a Pittsburgh connection too. I think uh, one of the gentlemen that was really involved in that is is in Pittsburgh and, and developed it there. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, a great place in Rochester where you are obviously with so much history there and uh, excellent research and high quality uh, basic science too. So it's, it's great to have uh, people that you can rely on and learn from. That's awesome. So well, I got to tell you, you know, from my perspective, um, I full disclosure, my mom is a psychiatrist. So I've always been really interested in kind of the psychological factors that play into how patients do after surgery. And, you know, our simple question really was, you know, I think for many of us, and the ACL is like a bread and butter sports medicine case. And I think we've gotten really good at doing this surgery technically. We know kind of where to place the graft. We know how to fix the graft. We know all about the rehab and recovery process. 
So this is trying to go a little beyond uh, the technical aspect and really trying to figure out and delve into how patient factors, especially their psychology, really factors in to how they're going to do after surgery. Yeah, no question about that. It's huge, plays a huge role. And um, I didn't realize the psychology background. That's great. It uh, gives you an advantage. I'm sure uh, growing up, that was, uh, was a great learning experience for you. So tell us, definitely yeah. a human lie detector, Justin. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that makes it trickier. You, you can't tell us white lie to mom. She'll catch you. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Uh, you know, you, you alluded to some of the details about, um, you know, situational depression is really interesting how you broke it down versus people that have more diagnosis of clinical depression. Or like you mentioned, the motivation in, in therapy. I've had patients just like all of us that, you know, this person just isn't really motivated, doesn't really have have a great um, interest in, in improving a lot of times. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts with that and what you studied. So the main finding of the study was that if someone carries the clinical diagnosis of being depressed, they're going to do better after ACL surgery, but they're less likely to do better than a patient who does not carry that particular diagnosis. Now, when we administer these questions, we administer it before surgery and certainly after surgery in the follow-up. And there are some patients who don't carry a clinical diagnosis of depression, but somewhere through their recovery process, they do actually become somewhat depressed about their what we call situation, so their, their recovery, their rehab. And the scenario that really rang true to me was I got a a call from a patient's mother who this patient was on a soccer team and his livelihood in, in, in high school and his social circle was his soccer team. And when he tore his ACL, he just wasn't able to participate and be part of that team. And, and he really was having a really rough go of things. And, you know, we really try to intervene with that patient, talking to his physical therapist and certainly offering him some other services. And um, when he finally started getting through the rehab process of getting his knee range of motion back and getting his quad strength back and then starting to run and now starting to do drills, we found that his promised depression scores really improved quite a bit. So it wasn't that the ACL recovery made him clinically depressed because obviously that's a medical condition, but it made him situationally depressed and he can get over that. And the value in this study, I think, is being able to counsel a patient to be able to tell them, hey, I know this is going to be really rough and I know we're going to have really kind of down times at this particular period in your recovery process. But we're going to get through this. And as we go through the PT and the rehab process, you know, your scores are going to perk up, your mood's going to perk up, and your function certainly is going to get a lot better. Yeah, that's a great example. Certainly, I think a lot of kids probably feel that way and aren't uh, as honest and forthcoming about it. And uh, that's great. Something we need to keep our antennas up about. And and proactively, you know, we're, we've met with and talked to so many people that if we take a few extra seconds and, and read the patient, I'm sure we can give a little blurb like you just discussed and might make a big impact in a lot of these kids because, like you said, it's just such a, a big part of their life. That's It's their whole life. Some of these sports, they're out of for such an extended period, and the beginning part, like you mentioned, is really hard for them a lot of times. For sure. 
Yeah. So just to segue with uh, what you basically just were speaking about regarding those with situational depression and their recovery, do you think a lot of it is uh, situational, you know, being out from the team, you know, are there some underlying um, things there? Um, Are there any other interventions or, or just basically building on kind of what you said, are there any other uh, factors or way you address that in, in your own practice? Yeah. I mean, that's a, this study was going to be a really great jumping off point for us kind of interfacing with our sports psychologists at our university, as well as, you know, our psychiatry department. And uh, unfortunately, COVID put a little bit of a hold to the next phase of things. But our psychiatry department has done some pretty amazing things with telehealth, as well as uh, various app or application-based resiliency programs that they're starting to develop. So I certainly think that, you know, this study can be a building block toward psychological intervention that will really, really help our patients achieve the best result possible. But I think very simply, I mean, if I see a patient has anxiety or depression, because oftentimes those do kind of correlate and have a similar neuropsychiatric background to them, Um, I probably do have a more in-depth conversation with them based on the study up front about what the recovery is going to be like. And I really make sure that they're plugged in either with their family doc or their psychiatrist to help get them through that process. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. One thing I was thinking is that, you know, obviously there's inappropriate stigma sometimes for, you know, whether it be patients or parents or healthcare providers referring people to sports psychologists. Tell us your thoughts about, you know, I guess if, if, if you have everyone at five or six months, you know, if you're getting started in this, work on some of these resiliency questionnaires or build this into your practice and then start referring people to sports psychology at that time point when they're getting used to getting more active in athletics. How, how do you think you uh, keep people engaged and don't create a stigma? Is it just by standardizing with everyone, talking about the commonality of it? Or tell us how how you think that can be lessened as a barrier. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that was probably the case when both me and you were growing up playing sports. I, I got to give a lot of credit to some of these professional athletes, like a Kevin Love, like a Naomi Osaka, like a Simone Biles, who are really talking about the mental aspect of sports. And I'm really hopeful by these super prominent and amazing athletes sharing their stories that more and more kids will realize, hey, they're some of the best athletes in the world and they're going through the same exact thing I'm going through. And I think by doing that, we'll we'll lessen the stigma almost of, of sending them over to a sports psychologist One thing that I've employed in my practice and in kind of changing the narrative on that is, you know, using this as almost like an enhancement to to their ability to perform. So viewing it more as a sports performance enhancement as opposed to a sports psychologist and flipping the paradigm there and how you're presenting it to them could really make a huge difference and get the buy-in you need to make that intervention really meaningful. Yeah, that's a great point. I I try to tell patients that at least at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, there's full-time psychologists that are with all the athletes and 
they're so busy, it's hard to even get them uh, time there. And this is what all the high level athletes are doing. You know, the professional athletes, like you mentioned, even if maybe they're not struggling as much as, as others, it's such an integral part, just like nutrition and the rest of their care. And hopefully that, uh, you know, allows people to, to be at ease and, and get rid of some of these barriers that obviously should not be there and seeming like we're moving in the right direction. That's great advice. Talking about sports performance, Justin, you know, we, we've all been there, right? We've been in there, there in the operating room. We've been there kind of, you know, standing over a two foot putt that you got to drain for that five bucks bet with your friend. And, you know, there are real scientific and psychological techniques you can use to really get in the zone. And, and I think any way that we can, you know, benefit our patients by using these proven scientific techniques is going to be huge. I mean, that, that's what we're all doing this for in sports medicine is to help our patients perform better, recover from injuries, and, and be the best that they can be. Yeah, no question. It's all about um, them and their, uh, their goals and aspirations. And, and you're right. That's great advice. Tell us a little bit about how your practice now is set up after this great study you put together. How is, how is this, you know, influencing and where is your practice going? And tell us kind of the day-to-day, you know, follow-up visits about this questionnaire or that questionnaire and how the sports psychologists are going to be intervening. And, you know, you mentioned kind of your plans with the stuff with COVID, but kind of tell us what you envision, you know, month by month or week by week or in the recovery process, how you think someone like, you know, me or most of our listeners maybe want to start this and then next level kind of what you're doing? So I think having some kind of patient reported outcome is super helpful when in practice. And utilizing those scores, just glancing at them to see how someone's doing is really helpful. But say you're not at a university like Pittsburgh or like Rochester where you have this available to you. I think you're your physical therapists are really your eyes and ears, as are the parents, and really engaging with them. And, you know, the therapists know if they're kind of losing a patient or they're, they're struggling or they're having a hard time. And so do the athletic trainers a lot of times if you're taking care of a high school or a collegiate or a professional team. And if you're seeing this, I, I think it's you know, incumbent upon us as as docs and as sports docs to recognize this. And, you know, maybe we're not the best people to to help this patient out through this particular aspect, but at least we can get them pointed in the right direction. So I, I just hope we're bringing some awareness to the psychological aspect of the recovery by doing a study like this. Right. No question. So do you, do you envision that, you know, at the six month time point, like, I actually was talking about this with one of our PAs today, you know, getting a basic questionnaire at six months and kind of screening patients. And how do you think um, we can get some information for, you know, some people that haven't, like you mentioned, um, don't have the resources? How do you think you kind of see this going? Yeah, that's really great. And And I wonder whether that six month is the right point or is it initially when you're in that, you know, knee brace, if you do knee bracing or you're on your crutches, if you do the crutches and, and, you know, is it that early time point or, and so I, I think this is definitely a jumping off point, but we probably have to figure out the, the timeline a little bit 
closer and, and really kind of tease out those details. I wish I could be so granular. I, I think the simple answer is I think we just have to be aware and really chat with our patients at each of their follow-ups of how are you doing? Are you engaging? And then we got to have to track how much they're following up with PT. Are they missing a bunch of appointments? Are there other things going on in their lives that are causing them to maybe not be as compliant with some of their exercises? And then work with them on strategies of how do we get you back to the level you want to be at. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, the whole point of your study is showing, and, and you gave that example early on, you know, it's is maybe the most important part that uh, you get them motivated with therapy because they know they're going to get better and you can uh, intervene earlier rather than you write six months and is maybe too late. It's a great, great point. Tell me your thoughts about implementing these uh, findings of your ACL study and, you know, some other other pathologies. Do you find that you're seeing the same thing in active labor with rotator cuff tearing or some of your arthroplasty cases? Or have you kind of jumped these findings from your ACL study that we're talking about here to other pathologies? Well, I don't want you to scoop any of my future research, but we, we certainly yeah. have been looking at this in, in a lot of other uh, settings, as you can imagine. Um, I have a really great abstract, hopefully that'll be accepted soon, and in a manuscript by Linda Zhang, who's an amazing resident of mine, who's looking at this in the setting of uh, bank art repairs. Again, in kind of an athletic population that has shoulder instability and that's, uh, you know, undergoing surgery and maybe away from their team from a bit. And we're certainly looking at this with uh, rotator cuff tears and, and shoulder replacements and shoulder arthritis. The other studies are a little bit more preliminary, but I can tell you it certainly does affect outcomes of uh, bank heart repairs and for shoulder instability. So, you know, it, it makes sense. A lot of us take care of patients and you kind of have this second or third or fourth or fifth sense of like, hey, I'm not so sure they're going to do great. And, um, you know, maybe we're just trying to quantify some factors that are outside of our control, but maybe we can influence so that our patients will do that much better. Right. That's that's another question and thought I had is, you know, where where do we go from here and how do we improve these outcomes like we've been talking about? And I guess it depends on on the injury. In a you know, young athlete with an ACL, you have to reconstruct that in most all circumstances, but maybe some of these rotator cuff patients that aren't um, definitively surgical, you can really spend time counseling them and use that as a, as a guide, much like, you know, arthroplasty colleagues with, um, you know, BMI and pre-albumin and, you know, all these other factors that it might make some difference with our education and decision-making. Is that kind of what your, your thoughts are in the future about how this would impact and improve patient outcome is decision-making and interventions? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, getting back to some of the motivation of this study, when we're talking about a biopsychosocial model, you know, we, we certainly know there's a lot of socioeconomic determinants of health. And if a patient has to ride a bus in order to get to their rehab, as opposed to being able to drive to the rehab, they just have fewer resources available to them. And maybe that's why they're a little less compliant. And, you know, certainly our study is trying to highlight the psychological aspect that is another 
you know, low hanging fruit to intervene that could maybe deliver a big bang for your buck. I think all these other aspects like we're talking about are a big factor in how our patients do. And it really comes down to, I think a lot of us like to think, and I think a lot of us do a really great ACL and a really great bank heart and a really good rotator cuff technically, but our outcomes from a patient perspective can be influenced by all these other factors. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here to intervene on some of these other factors so our patients do that much better. Yeah, all great points. And certainly I'm sure you and the other listeners struggle with patients with certain PT visits or $50 per copay with physical therapy. And it's just so limited and getting tougher and tougher. So you know, all of those things is more complicated than you just got to go to therapy. It's, it's a lot involved with what's going on at home. So really being cognizant of that is, is a, a great point. Appreciate you discussing that. Absolutely. And same thing with, you know, being able to see a sports psychologist. A lot of sports psychologists are, you know, a fee for service, you know, business and uh, might not be accessible to everyone. But that's where I'm hoping that you know, through COVID and leveraging telehealth and leveraging some of these other technologies such as apps for mindfulness or resiliency could be really helpful for some of our patients who might not have the means to access that one-on-one care. Yeah, no question. Well, appreciate you sharing your study and your knowledge and, you know, all of your insights with us today. Uh, thank you so much for your time and And certainly, I think five and 10 years down the road, you know, this conversation hopefully will be a lot different. And it's it's an exciting and uh, uh, growing, I think, field that's really important. So I appreciate your time. Absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, this information with uh, all the readers and the listeners. Perfect. Thanks so much. Dr. Manava's article titled, Clinically Depressed Patients Having ACL Reconstruction Show Improved But Inferior Rate of Achieving MCID for promise captured with situationally depressed or non-depressed patients is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at arthroscopy.org. Thanks so much for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. (laughs) 